Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today I'm joined by Mike Hayes, author of the new book, Never Enough, a Navy SEAL commander on living a life of excellence, agility, and meaning. Mike served as commanding officer of SEAL Team 2, and in 2012, he oversaw all special operations in southeastern Afghanistan. He was a director at the National Security Council for Defense Policy and Strategy under President George W. Bush and President Barack Obama. In addition to his memoir, Mike founded the 1162 Foundation to support the families of special operators who gave their lives in service. And most recently, Mike wrote an op-ed for Time Magazine entitled, President Biden Made the Right Choice to Withdraw from Afghanistan. Mike, thanks for joining me today. Reed, it's a real pleasure to be here. And thanks to you for all the incredible positive impact you've had on this great nation. Well, you're too kind to say so. You guys had to go out and do actual work. We sat behind Zooms and made commercials about Donald Trump's small hands and inability to drink water. So we all do our part, I guess. But Mike, talk to me a little bit about your background. So you went to Holy Cross, you were in the ROTC and joined the Navy, became a SEAL. How long were you a, a member of the SEAL teams? I served for 20 years, came in in 1993 and retired in 2013 and have been in the private sector now for a little over eight years. So let me ask you this. I mean, when you went in in 1993, that was sort of the, I mean, maybe not for guys like you, but for the rest of the world, that felt a little like Pax Americana. The Cold War had ended. Democracy was on the rise. There were hot spots here and there, obviously, Somalia, Kosovo, Haiti, places like that. But the global standoff between communism and capitalism and mutually assured destruction appeared probably to have receded. So what was it like, you know, going into the teams in that early 90s mindset to post 9-11, where you guys are probably deployed, you know, significantly more often, although again, I know you can't tell us a lot about that. But what was that transition like from when you first joined the Navy and joined the SEALs to when you got out 20 years later? In 93, I did what I'm unable to do with stocks in my personal portfolio, which is buy low and sell high. So uh, in 93, we were in a very peaceful era. You know, we were a couple years post the first Gulf War and my first eight years in the SEALs, while sure there were a couple hotspots in here and there, it was incomparable to the post 9-11 decade plus of just go, 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 deploy, deploy, deploy. I personally was involved in a lot of different things in the SEALs, you know, both Iraq and Afghanistan. And I tell you, the SEALs who joined after 9-11, I really credit them so much more than I credit any sort of credit that I get for joining the SEALs. These guys really knew what they were getting into. I was a 21-year-old kid fresh out of college and who just said, hey, let me go try the hardest thing I can possibly put my mind to. And so if you're jumping out of an airplane or leaping off a boat or, you know, leaving a submarine, you know, you're in that moment. But if you were to zoom out now to your time at the National Security Council, where you're really taking a look at things globally, strategically, a little bit more long term, does it surprise you that both the world generally, in which the early 90s democracy seemed to be on the rise because Eastern Europe was now open, 
that it's taken 30 years for a lot of that to sort of go retrograde on us, not only in places like Poland and Hungary that were once bright, shining stars of both a new democracy and a new market economy, but also right here in the U.S. I mean, how does that look to someone who's been literally on the front lines, but also had to sit in you know a very cloistered world looking at very heady subjects? Over my 30 years of professional life, I've been able to kind of see more and more strategically, and I've been really fortunate to, like you said, be on the front lines of a lot of different places. The reason we fight overseas and do hard things overseas is so that we can have great process and policy options as a nation. So ultimately, what makes the nation strong is being able to have process that considers all different sides of an argument. And then once you make a decision like we do in the SEALs to go do an operation, no matter how many different opinions there were of how to do that operation, when it's time to go, we all get behind it and go the same direction. So Reed, I am a little bit disappointed at times that we can't disagree a little more agreeably right now and that we can't get ourselves a little bit more aligned behind some of the uh, initiatives that will really make our nation great. When you and your team members are out whether or not that was pre-9-11, whether or not that was Afghanistan. And there's pretty significant domestic turmoil. How does that affect the men and women who are out there on the front line, who are on the wall on a daily basis? Does it filter down to them? Do they hear from their families? What kind of effect does that have on both the morale of the troops, the operations of the troops? Are there pretty significant political divides within the force? I'd say two things. First of all, we have an extremely professional million plus person Department of Defense that really understands the concept of civilian control of the military. So when there are orders decided that the national security decision-making process have made, our military gets behind those orders and goes. On the flip side of that, people aren't immune to what's actually happening and do look back and say, how is the spirit of the debate? Is it healthy or is it unhealthy? You know, it's interesting you said one thing, and I want to bring that to something that's going to happen this week. So Congresswoman Liz Cheney from Wyoming is the conference chair in the Republican House conference, and she is likely to lose her job probably Wednesday or Thursday. And a lot of the headlines I've seen have really missed the boat on this fight. And a lot of what I've seen in the quote unquote conservative intelligentsia, and I use that in serious air quotes, has been like, to your point. If leadership makes a decision, and what they basically said is Cheney is the number three person in leadership, she fundamentally disagrees with the direction of the Republican Party, the Republican Party should have leaders that agree with it. And what Cheney has said is like, it's the wrong direction, morally, politically, democratically, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you square that, both in your mind personally and you know, if you've had to make a decision like that, is it a lawful order? Maybe if you're out in the field, the morality of a situation is less important because you've got your life and the lives of your men and, and everybody else on the line. But how do you square that with the idea of, well, she's not the leader they want because she's fundamentally unwilling to sort of bow to, you know, the big lie or whatever you want to call it? Let me answer that first with a story read. In my book, In Never Enough, I tell a story in 2012 how we had a policy called Boots on the Ground. BDA, Battle Damage Assessment. I was the person who decided whether or not we dropped a bomb on buildings or people. These are really important and hard decisions often made within 30 seconds or less. And, you know, proud to say we never harmed anybody we shouldn't harm. There was one particular night where, to make a long story short, we saw a bunch of bad people doing bad things to good people. We 
drop bombs on them. And then the general staff said, hey, Commander Hayes, you got to send your troops back in for boots on the ground, battle damage assessment, make sure you didn't kill any civilians. And Reed, that was the wrong thing to do. It was unnecessary risk. Part of my job as a leader is to make sure that as a nation or as a force that we do not assume unnecessary risk. I knew that we didn't kill any civilians, but I do understand and I supported the policy. But what you have to do is have flexibility and agility to leave people closest to the problem to be able to exert their professional judgment. On this particular night, I said, no, we're not going to go back down this road that was known to have IEDs, improvised explosive devices. And the general said, you've got to get down there. And I had to put effectively my career on the line to say, no, we're not doing it. The general ended up going to his Afghan counterpart and having the Afghans go down this road. Two of three vehicles were vaporized, you know, four or five Afghans killed instantly, and then several more hurt. So the point of that story, Reed, number one is you have to know when your morals and your ethics and your standards are more important than anything going on. And what do you stand for as a human and as a person and as a leader for this great nation? We have to bear risk for this nation to put our viewpoints out there. The second part of the story, what it connects to is thinking about evidence. Like what is the actual evidence being weighed in order to make decisions? You know, if you go back on or around January 6th or 7th, you know, if you look at the quote that McCarthy had, it's not conceptually that different from the quote that Cheney had. But now we're in a spot where is there some sort of a double standard? What has changed through time? What I would just ask the listeners to do is think critically about the evidence that's out there and say, are we as Americans, all 330 million Americans, making decisions with the right and the best evidence we can, the data? So I want to talk a little bit about the book, because there's one thing that struck me, and this comes from a lifelong civilian. You know, in civilian life, there's this idea of work smarter, not harder. There are so many efficiencies built into our everyday lives now that even 20, 30, 50 years ago we didn't have. You seem to be of the opinion that you should take the harder path once in a while. And so why is that? Well, I think leaning into the hard things in life is where the learning is. And so if you subscribe to the idea that we have a long time to serve our families, our fellow citizens, and our colleagues, then really leaning into the hard things, you're either going to succeed or you're going to fail. But I like to say it's only failure if you fail and don't learn. If you fail and learn, you've just succeeded because you're going to be better and you're going to enable yourself to be a better leader, a better follower, a better contributor. So the more you lean in and the better you become, the less effort and energy it takes to get the hard things done. And so that's where we develop the people around us and we get better as individuals. So let me ask you this, just to step back into your time at the White House. And when did you serve at the White House? 08 to 10. Okay, so both President Bush and President Obama. And so you're sitting there, you're at the National Security Council, and you talk about how you, in your book, you know very little about strategic arms treaties. But here you are, and this is now what you're working on. I asked you a little bit before we started recording. You're sitting in these rooms. It's in the basement of the West Wing. You know, it's dark. It's smaller than it probably looks on television. And you're making these decisions, and you're having these conversations that have real long-range potential effects on all 7 billion human beings on the planet. But those are all typically done in the context of external threats or external issues. Do you think that there are any conversations that go on in the Situation Room today where folks are talking about the internal threats that we see? I'm obviously not in those conversations right now, but I can guarantee you that our national leadership is thinking holistically about risk. Ultimately, what we're deciding is, A, what do we want as an outcome as a nation for any given policy area? 
And then B is how do we go achieve it? What's the holistic cost, not just fiscally, financially? What's the cost to go achieve what we're trying to achieve? And as we've seen the rise of various internal threats, I'm certain that they're being discussed. You know, you're reading about the defense secretary, Secretary Austin, dealing with extremism in the ranks of the military or tackling these things head on. It's very commendable to identify it, talk about it, and then figure out how we're going to become who we want to be as a nation. Sunlight, as you know, is the best disinfectant. And so pouring the sunlight onto these issues is the best way for us to move forward as a nation. Well, and sticking to something in the news today, there was a cyber attack on a pipeline that stretches from Texas to the East Coast carrying oil. So when that happens, the company has been fairly tight-lipped about whether or not this was criminals, whether or not this was a state actor. But, you know, and it sounds like it's going to take a few days to get everything back online. So, you know, the risks that you guys saw in Afghanistan were probably similar within that context, which is you knew the bad guys were out there. You didn't certainly know necessarily who they were, where they were, what they were trying to do, but you knew that at some point they were going to try and do something bad. And it seems like a lot of these folks in the cyber world are the same thing. It could be a bunch of guys in Romania, it could be a bunch of guys in the Philippines, or it could be, you know, the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg or, you know, somebody in Beijing. How do we contend with stuff like that? I mean, this is a tangible real world effect, which is gasoline could be $4 a gallon, it could be $5 a gallon. But like, how do we contend with things like that? First of all, like any great strategy or set of policy, we have to have a multifaceted approach to everything. So to keep it simple, we have to think in both offense and defense. The most important part of the offensive aspect of this is intelligence gathering so that we can understand what's happening so we can deal with it. So I'm certain I have no particular knowledge of this attack, just to be clear to the listeners. But what I would speculate is that you've got a lot of really smart people throughout many departments and agencies in the private sector sharing information to say, where did this come from? So that we get the best possible information and, and we can act on that. You know, Ransomware is clearly a fiscal motivation. And when we're choking off the North Korea's, the Iran's, or putting sanctions on the Russia's, we can only expect more and more attacks like this. And then the question is, how are we defending ourselves and putting resources against the problem of playing the defensive side? A lot of that starts with having a good site picture of what our infrastructure looks like and then taking the snapshots of saying what's changed in not in a day to day or year to year, but in a microsecond to microsecond kind of situation. So just so we're clear, ransomware is a situation in which a hacker or hackers capture your data or take you offline and say, give me a million dollars and I'll give you your stuff back. Exactly. And so now, you know, one of the stories I was reading was it is pretty common knowledge among national security types that the Russians have embedded malware, you know, malicious software within the code of a lot of our infrastructure, our national infrastructure. And there is an assumption, although I don't think anybody has admitted it, that we have done the same to the Russians. So is this just sort of a 21st century mutually assured, maybe not destruction, but mutually assured blackout? It could be that. It could also just be information gathering because let's go back to our Sun Tzu, the art of war. You know, he who has the most information usually wins. And so you start with information gathering, but then as you work your way into other organizations around the globe, not surprisingly, these places are creating things like kill switches that can shut things down. And so this is part of our national infrastructure debate coupled with our national security decision-making process of saying, where do we want to put our resources? Like after 9-11, we put a lot of money into the TSA, but man alive, there are a thousand other vectors that threats could come from. 
security is a tough, tough job because you're constantly making decisions that matches limited resources versus the outcomes that we're trying to achieve. I have a ton of respect for the people sitting in these chairs making those decisions. And ultimately, the most important thing is that we share information between the private and the public sector. Do I really still have to take my shoes off 20 years later? <laughs> I mean, I get it. Like, I get that security, it is the ultimate impossible task. You can spend all the money in the world and never get the one guy who decides to go do something bad, right? Because you just can't find him. It's just one of those things where sometimes it feels like there's a lot of performative aspect to it, but it's a hell of an expensive performance for all of us. Well, it also gets to the foundational question of how much privacy are you willing to give up in the name of security? And we had these discussions and dialogues in and around the Patriot Act, recall years ago. And today's equivalent is how much of our data do we give up to the Amazons, the Apples, et cetera, and trust that the right things are happening with that data? Look, trust is a complicated issue and different people need different amounts of trust or signage that trust can be placed in large organizations. But how do we as a nation take a bunch of disparate views on how much privacy we give up in the name of security and ultimately land on policy? Because it doesn't do us any good to not answer that question. Well, and when you talk about something like big tech, like you're talking about, or big social media, the inputs on the argument aren't even the same based on your political party. If you're a Democrat, it's about what you're just talking about. You know, all of this data, who does it belong to? Where does it go? There are these leaks, you know, they tell you about the leak a year after it happens and, you know, you, the individual has to deal with it. On the right, it's not so much about the data as it is being sort of silenced or canceled, which I have a little bit harder time with because, you know, on any given day, Facebook tends to be an accelerator of, you know, sort of far right conspiracy-esque stuff. And so that's one thing um, Ann Applebaum, who we talk about a lot at the Lincoln Project, says, you know, a country that doesn't have common arguments has a very difficult time living together because you can't even agree on what the major issues are. Republicans and Democrats can say the major issue about tech is that they're too big, but there's a reason. On the left, it's they're out of control. They can do whatever they want. They need to be broken up. And on the right, it's they need to be broken up so that more of us can have our voices heard. But that seems to be just a popular thing. But I do want to come back to trust, because I think that is probably one of our biggest, if not our biggest sort of macro issue, is that nobody trusts anybody to do anything, that everybody believes there's an ulterior motive, that everybody believes that it's about power and money, and a lot of times it is. So is someone who committed so much of their lives to service, where does the greater good come back? When is it reinserted into the equation? How does that happen? Look, I think, Reed, it boils down to ownership in the country. What I've found is that when you get off the sideline and you actually believe in an issue and you do work to advance it, you feel ownership in those issues. Look, we all have different skills and abilities and interests. And so how do we push the 330 million Americans to go take actual ownership of any issue that you believe in? And then by that, you get better informed and you can have conversations like trust with real information instead of just jumping to a conclusion of something that your cousin's uncle saw on the internet. You know, it's like what we really need to be doing is thinking about trust ultimately boils down to neighbors and colleagues, and we need to have leadership that really does exemplify where we need to go as a nation. So you wrote an op-ed in Time magazine commending President Biden for his decision to essentially end the war in Afghanistan after 20 years. You spent a lot of time there. You've seen, I assume, some of the worst of humanity, and I hope some of the best of it too. Where do you see President Biden's leadership so far? If you had to sort of take a look at where he is 
just a few months into office, you know, ending the war in Afghanistan, not a small decision. You have a lot of people on every side of that issue who want to make hay for one reason or another. I don't know if there's some issue within the military of like they don't want to pull out. If you have this sort of Eisenhower-esque military industrial complex that wants to keep building drones and missiles and everything else. So where do you see him on those issues, both internationally and then how do you see him doing here at home? I think that if you listened to President Biden's acceptance speech, not knowing if he was a Republican or a Democrat, you'd say this was one of the greatest speeches that we've heard in a long time from a national leader. The discussion around unity and coming together as a nation is so sorely needed, but also based on mutual respect for different viewpoints. And instead of just being who's the loudest person on an issue and the loudest person wins, I think that the concepts of process and decorum are really going to serve this nation well for the foreseeable future. And so I would really commend the administration on bringing back boringness, if you will, to the national policy process. The man is a very sound, measured person who draws out alternate voices. That's all we can ask from our leadership. Look, our nation's forefathers designed our system so that half the country supports and half the country doesn't support who is in office. So the question really is when the person who we don't support is in office, how do we react? And so I will say that from a purely process perspective, I do like what I'm seeing. Well, you know, that's one thing Stuart Stevens, who's one of our senior advisors, says he was doing a campaign in the Congo of all places. And he was with a UN observer and he said, you know, the thing about democracy is somebody has to be willing to lose. And I feel like that's something that we are losing as a concept. And we see it every day, right? If somebody loses a close race, we have recounts, we have processes for that. But now we're into a situation in which, you know, you have fully one political party and millions, potentially tens of millions of their supporters saying the last year's election was not legitimate. It was not free and fair. It was stolen. There were irregularities. Despite the fact, as you were talking about earlier, there doesn't seem to be any evidence to support any of that. But this thing has just taken hold. I mean, you talked about the steadiness of a Biden administration. Just personally, my wife says, well, you know, Biden's a pretty boring president. I said, that's the whole point, right? <laughs> he gets up in the morning, he puts his tie on, he gets his briefing, and he, you know, he does his one set of remarks a day, and he has his meetings, and he makes decisions. So that's good, right? I think that turns the sort of the temperature on on discourse down from broil to like 400 degrees. But, you know, one, what concerns you the most? And then two, how do we move into a place where, to your point, we are all worried about our families and our communities and our neighbors so that it's not about Donald Trump or, you know, just some overriding grievance? I think the simple answer to that question is decision and discourse. And so should the infrastructure bill be 1.9 trillion or 3 trillion? That's a pretty big gap. And if you're going to get to the three trillion side, how in the world are we going to pay for that? And what's the plan for redistribution of wealth in the nation? And so it's unquestionable that at some degree, we need to be pulling up people who can't help themselves. But how do we make sure that we're not helping people to stay on a couch when they don't need the help? That's the art form of this issue here that is a very hard line to draw. And so I don't have the answer. I'm not studying this issue closely, but I do get concerned about mortgaging the nation's future. So you can say, what concerns me the most? I don't want to be taking on so much debt that we're pulling forward tomorrow's earnings to spend today. And this is one of the points, right? Which is, you know, if you're a policymaker, what's the more important thing? Which is getting, you know, money injected into the economy so that you are getting people back to work. 
that you are rebuilding decades old infrastructure that also has a temporizing and stabilizing effect on the country, but you understand that there is a bit of mortgaging that's coming along with that. I mean, that's not an easy choice to make. Right. So the point I'm trying to make, Reed, is how do we do that with real information that is not partisan? That doesn't just say, uh, okay, once you know what someone's motivation is, you get far right or you get far left. I just want some real information that can take a holistic look at a net present value, a cost benefit analysis of what we're going to be doing. And not just from a fiscal standpoint, but look, I mean, there's no doubt that infrastructure is going to have unquestionably positive contribution to productivity. If you go back to GDP, it's just labor times productivity. And so labor is fertility rates and immigration policy. Productivity is really where the name of the game is. And so as we can make this nation more productive, we amp up GDP and we can then decide to spend it on more education, healthcare, paying down debt, et cetera, et cetera. So Reed, I think the main thing for me is how do we make better decisions with better data? So as we wrap up here, tell me a little bit about the 1162 Foundation and what does that mean? JFK started the SEALs on January 1st, 1962. I started a 501c3 that pays off mortgages for Gold Star families. And ultimately, I wrote Never Enough because it's really about mission and meaning and impact. I'm donating all of my profits from the book to the 501c3. At this point, I like to say that I've lived, I don't know, hundreds or thousands of once in a lifetime experiences. And I'm just really passionate, read about sharing and giving back. So the win-win that I saw in my mind was to share, you call it a memoir, which is right, but it's also business. It's also inspiration, education, teaching. It's really what I've intended to do is take my experiences that might seem unrelatable, but make them relatable to everybody, whether you're a SEAL or in the White House Situation Room or not. How do we all think about pulling each other up? How do we use our gifts and our abilities to make this nation stronger and better? And, and so the foundation you mentioned, look, I don't have a website. If you dig around on the IRS's website, you'll see that it's a, it's a legitimate organization. But the best thing I think is really raising the dialogue in and around veterans issues. And then more importantly, how we all make the nation stronger. So we can find your book on Amazon. And while I have you, is there any place we can find you online on social media? Yeah, um, Twitter, this is Mike Hayes. And then Instagram is this is dot Mike Hayes. And under LinkedIn, you can just Google Mike Hayes seal and, and I'll pop up. But part of the growing up in the seals is feeling comfortable asking for help. That's what teammates do for each other. And I'd love help getting the message of never enough out to the world and ultimately making us all stronger. Well, listen, we want to thank you for joining us today. Everyone, you can, as always, find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. And until next time, this is Reed for The Lincoln Project, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Sinical and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. Thank you.